Yo, and welcome into week 11 of pre-gaming the SEC, brought to you by Walk-Ons Sports Bistro. As always, it's walk-ons.com. Find a location near you. And again, we say it every week because it's factual. If you're in an SEC location or if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably headed to an SEC location at some point in the football season. And there's probably a location that is either already there or soon to be in your location. Jacob Hester, Chris Doring, and the Big Turp back for another week. And CD, what a week it was. What a week it was for the folks there in Baton Rouge. What a week it was for the folks in, in Athens. Uh, great weekend of, of football in general in our conference and nationally as well with Clemson falling to Notre Dame there and, and what was a uh, a beatdown. Uh, you know, I was going to say it was an upset, but watching those two teams play, it, it seemed like Notre Dame was the better team from yeah. the get-go. But, yeah, it just, uh, it's just it's getting down to the stretch. And, um, you know, it's it starting to gain a little bit of visibility in terms of what the, the college football playoff scene is going to look like and certainly what the, the pairing for the SEC championship will look like in the first week of December. Well, just like we all had it after the Alabama <laughs> week, LSU in the driver's seat in the SEC West. That's exactly what we talked about in Atlanta at SEC Media Days, right? Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, it was uh, a much different uh, scenario than what we were thinking back in July and even – Looking at where LSU was after that first weekend of the season, I made the statement at the time with the issues on the offensive line, with as disorganized as they looked, as undisciplined as they looked, I said this team's going to have a hard time making it to bowl eligibility. And here we are later on uh, with them making their way most likely to Atlanta and uh, having the maybe the most growth, most positive growth I've seen in a season in the history of, of following this, this conference. Yeah, we're certainly going to get to it just like we do every single week. It's hold my beer, it's last call, and then we do the pre-gaming, and then we get to best bets. And I've been kind of stealing it from you, CD. I've been holding my beer before you, and I don't know if I've taken any of your hold my beer. So I'm going to try and be a good host. I'm going to pass it to you. Yeah. Where do you want to go first? This is the ultimate hold my beer, right? This is what hold my beer came from. It's the idea of going out and doing something bold. And that is exactly what Brian Kelly did on the sideline on Saturday night when he had a chance to, to kick the extra point to go to another overtime period. He said, hold my beer. I'm going to pull my large testicles out and I'm going to go for <laughs> two here to end this game on the spot. It worked out, obviously, best for, uh, for, for the decision that he made. Do you think, though, had he made that decision and not converted the two-point conversion that there would have been upset LSU fans? I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there's always going to be somebody that's second-guessing mm -hmm. him. But in that moment when he made the decision as an LSU alum, as a great player in the history of that program, were you on board for that decision or were you a little nervous that maybe that wasn't the right move? So normally I wouldn't have great insight like in the moment what the fans were saying in the stands because I've always worked. LSU games or worked whatever game I've been at. This is, as you know, CD, the first year I am not working games. And so I watched this with my 13-year-old son, which in, in its own right was, was an amazing experience, something I've never gotten to do in my entire life. Since I've had children, I've not been able to do it because I was either playing or working. So that was a fantastic experience. But also, I got to hear what the fans were saying in every moment. Like I was sitting with the fans. I, I'm in the West Stadium Club sitting there in a section. And so whenever that decision was made and they score in overtime and they send the offense back out there, I was thinking, oh, man, these fans are going to erupt. They're going to be mad. And 
every fan that was in my section, at least, was like, absolutely, go for it. Go for two. We, we can't have another Florida State. That was kind of the theme there in, in the section that I was in. So at least where I was sitting and what we've heard on the show with T-Bob this week now, after the fact, you can say, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I was, I was all about going for two. But in that moment, everyone sitting around me, CD actually agreed with the moment and said, yeah, we should go for two because, one, you don't want another Florida State. And two, how many more times do you want to send the Heisman Trophy winner back on the field with a chance to win? Yeah, I, I think that it sends a couple messages. One, uh, to your players that you believe in them. One, that you, you, you're going to take this opportunity in front of the home fans to, to, to beat Alabama, a team that's given you fits over the last couple decades. But I also think it's a statement larger than just this game. It, and it has to do more with the rivalry going forward. It's we're not afraid of Alabama. We're not going to play conservatively. Right. We're not going to hope for the best. We're going to be the dictators of the tempo. We're going to decide what happens here and take control of this game. And I, I almost feel you would probably know this better, but from those that I talked to around the LSU program, it seemed like that was the message through the entire bye week into game prep week is that wh why are we going to treat this like any other game? This is a nameless, faceless opponent like every other team that we've played this year. We're not going to get overwhelmed by the idea of this is Alabama and the history mm -hmm. that's come along with that. Yeah, I think you're right, because so many times that game has been built up so much and too much and probably more from the LSU side than the Alabama side. And for Alabama, they've probably had the thought process of we've won a lot of these in a row. We only lost once, and that was in 2019. It took a historic team to beat us, right? And so for them, that's probably the way they've treated that game, and it's been a benefit for them. LSU and LSU in the past, they've made too much of this game. And that, look, there's a bye week in between it. And so that's going to happen organically. But also LSU added some extra to that, you always felt like. And so Brian Kelly did do a nice job of making it, hey, this is an opponent. They're a great opponent. They're number six in the country. We're two touchdown underdog. But like, it's not about who the opponent is. We're treating this like we treated Ole Miss. And I thought that was key for this matchup. And there's so many great storylines to get into when it comes to some of the guys that are having success for LSU, and I've kind of talked about it all week, like this is a team that, that bet on themselves. If you really think about some of the stars for this team, the head coach, Brian Kelly, he bet on himself. He's at Notre Dame. They're winning 10 games every year. Last year, they almost get into the CFP. LSU was really, let's call it like it is. It was a dumpster fire the last two years after all the success in 19, but he bets on himself saying, I can turn that historic program around. I can go in there and I can win championships, something I haven't yet done at Notre Dame. And you leave a really good job, a marquee blue blood job to come to LSU. He's betting on himself to be able to turn it around. Jaden Daniels at Arizona State. LSU didn't reach out to him. He reached out to LSU. That's an important part of the, uh, of the story here. He I don't think I've ever heard that either. I, I wasn't aware yeah. that that was the genesis of the whole discussion about the job being taken. Yeah, he reached out to LSU and was like, hey, would y'all be interested? And so LSU starts to do their homework, and obviously they accept him, and he's a starting quarterback, but he bet on himself. He, he looked across the country and said, where do I want to go play? Where can I play? And LSU didn't have a light quarterback room. I mean, they had Miles Brennan. They had Garrett Nussmeyer. They have Walker Howard, who's a five-star number two quarterback in the country. So he bets on himself and goes to LSU. I mean, Josh Williams. Josh Williams is someone – who gets hurt his senior year of high school, has scholarship offers to go play college football at the FBS level, not as high as LSU because of the injury, doesn't take scholarship offers to get his college paid for, walks on to LSU, and then earns a scholarship after his freshman year. That's betting on yourself, and I know you can appreciate yeah. that 
as well. So, like, I mean, I could go story after story, but that's what this team is really made up of. And the makeup and the DNA of this team is one that's really impressive. Now, we'll get to it later when we pregame the SEC. They've got to be laser focused. And that's something that's a term they like to use over across the Ponderosa is laser focused. They better be laser focused this week. Yeah, you wor- you worry about that letdown and you know the sense of complacency that can creep in. And and mm-hmm. as you said, we could talk about it a little bit more later as we look ahead to this upcoming weekend. But this is a dangerous game that looms for them, having to go to Fayetteville, a team that clearly was embarrassed last week and uh, and it wants to make up for that uh, poor representation of themselves they put on tape. Yeah. So uh, we we can look at that going forward, but. How you handle success is sometimes more difficult than actually how you handle yep. failure. So we'll see if LSU is up for the task. All right, my hold my beer. I'm going to Athens, Georgia, and it's really just plain and simple. It is, we're the top dog, no pun intended. We're still Georgia. We're still the champion. It was a one-versus-one one matchup, but we know who the real number one is. No one talks about us. We're the least talked about number one team, maybe of all time. We have a quarterback and Stetson Bennett that no one wants to talk about or give him any credit for the success it's just you know how Kirby works I know how Kirby works he wants it this way but it's amazing how Georgia does not get talked about and every other team around them does and this is not against Tennessee Tennessee is a damn good football team Tennessee is going to still go a long way this year they have many wins still in front of them but Georgia talking about hold my beer Oh, you think you're the number one team in the country? And they're not just talking to Tennessee. That was a statement on every other team that thinks that they could potentially challenge Georgia. Look at what Oregon's done. I mean, Oregon's a damn good football team. And I know that that game probably wouldn't be 49 to three or whatever it was that they played it again, but Georgia wins and they win by double digits. So Georgia reminded all of us, and I'm including myself in this CD, we're still the top dog. We still sit on top of the mountain. And you're not really close to knocking us off. It was impressive. I'll tell you what, uh, you know, sometimes the offense gets overshadowed by, you know, the defense. And I think in this case, that's certainly. We won't allow that here on pregaming the SEC yeah. with two offensive guys. Yeah, I mean, it, it, looking at, at what uh, Stetson Bennett did, setting the tone in the, in the first half of that game, using receivers that uh, had not, you know, wide receivers had kind of been an afterthought in this offense with injuries and and tight ends taking center stage but arian smith catching that long pass early on looking at uh, rosemary jack saint catch the touchdown in the back of the end zone mcconkey was a huge part of the offense including a tremendous call on a double move after a a a a punt got them you know the football at the 37 yard line i love the aggressiveness and i love the the cohesiveness of that team you know and I, i mentioned it on our show the other day and i know you'll appreciate it too has how much special teams can impact the outcome of a ball game? The 75-yard punt that backed Tennessee up to within the, the shadow of their own goalpost. A defensive stand that gets the ball right back. The punt return who, who fields the ball on a fair catch at the 37. And then the offense that strikes immediately with the aggressive yep. play calling there on a double move. Like That, to me, is playing complementary football in all three phases. And that's what makes football teams separates good from great. And I think that this Georgia team clearly made a statement that they are great in a lot of ways. I mean, one last point. I want to get your thought on this. I mean, it has to to be a positive for them inside that building, though, that nobody really talks about them. And and they get talked about, but you know what I mean. I mean, the last couple of years, 2019 LSU, 2020 Alabama, even really Georgia's team last year got talked about because so many defensive guys were going to be first-round picks. 
Um, it, it just, it feels like no one talks about them. It's not loud. They're able to go about their business, worry about the game plan. And it just feels like they're ready every single week. They've got a plan every single week. They allow their play to do the talking. And it just feels like in this day and age, it's hard to have the mindset that they have, but they have it at an elite level. Yeah. I thought it was an amazing, uh, defensive game plan, particularly where everybody else had not been able to generate a ton of pressure on him and hooker. They said, yeah. We're going to go after these guys, and we're going to do it. It may not be in our normal DNA, uh, but they blitzed on 62% of Tennessee's dropbacks, where they typically only blitz about 23% of the time. They put their corners on an island, and they believed that they could lock down some of the most successful re receivers in the country to this point in the year, and they were able to, to create pressure like nobody had before with Hinden Hooker, uh, having guys not only come off the edges on some of those blitzes, but getting a good push up front with their defensive line which I think is really one of the keys in, in defending this Tennessee offense is having pass rush up the middle that can affect you know the way that the, the comfort that Hinton and Hooker had. Because they had three deep balls that they had chances to hit, Hess. And I know yeah. you, you recognize that, but they missed those three opportunities where they hadn't earlier. And, and while he, they didn't get sacked on those plays, they did have some pressure that you know forced him to throw early or forced him not to have that same level of comfort that, comfort that they, they typically have allowed in the back. I thought it was a really good game plan defensively, obviously. I mean, Hinden Hooker hasn't looked human all season long, and he looked human. I mean, he throws an interception. He doesn't throw for a touchdown. And I'm sitting here, and I'm looking at some of the defensive grades for Georgia, and no surprise, no surprise that they picked up their level of play, and no surprise that they did it on, on both ends as far as rush defense and pass defense. And you look at this, this defense, and it doesn't have the stars that last year's defense had. But we talked about it last week. When you don't take a player out of the portal, that just tells the entire story of what you felt about your depth. Like you lose a Nolan Smith. It's like, man, edge rushers, it's just it's hard to go find one of those guys. Well, not for Georgia. Not for Georgia. They got another guy waiting in the wings, and he's going to step up. It might not be to the exact level, but it's damn close, and they can win games with it. I'll tell you this, too. You know, it's a great contrast to what we've seen at other places this year, particularly Texas A&M, because – you could go back and compare. Texas A&M's probably recruited better than what Georgia has over a three-year span, at least to the recruiting rankings. But not, it's not just about accumulating that talent. It's about developing that talent, and it's about putting them in positions with game plans for them to be successful. Utilization of the talent that you have and optimizing their abilities. That's exactly what I watched from Georgia. And I, I was remiss the other day. I mentioned Kirby Smart and Will Muschamp, and I forgot all about Glenn Schumann being the co-defensive coordinator there. Mm -hmm. I feel so bad about that, but those three guys and the rest of the defensive staff put together a, a tremendous game plan where they, they trusted their guys. And, and I don't know if you watched it on tape yet or not, but it's like watching a well-choreographed like orchestra or like a dance, like everybody doing their part together. Yeah. It just It was beautiful to watch on tape. All right, Big Turb, we want to welcome you onto the show. I know we went long there with Hold My Beer, but with you know two epic performances and two great scenes, two great crowds, and really just four really good football teams, that was a lot of fun to watch over the weekend. Let's go ahead and hit a little last call. All right, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's go a little rapid fire here. Uh, CD, why don't we just go ahead and start with your Gators, man? Uh, might have been some flu issues on the other end yeah. of uh, Texas A&M, but we're not going to get too much into that for a Gators perspective here. They get the 41-24 win over a preseason top 10 team. Not bad, right? Yeah, Big Turb, I don't know what I expected from, from Florida after a tumultuous week in Gainesville where you kick Brenton Cox off the team, one of the most 
um, probably the most effective pass rusher you have on the team, but a guy that has been known for, for doing things his own way, not necessarily playing his assignments, being a little bit of a me guy. I think it was a signal, Hester, to everybody that, hey, we're not sacrificing culture. We're not sacrificing um, you know, our plan going forward for the future for yeah. production now in the present. And it was a signal they were moving forward. And that's exactly what you saw on the field, particularly in the second half. I thought Florida, who had been terrible on defense on third down for the entire season, had their best performance in the second half of that game with largely a lot of young guys that most people don't know the names of at this point. They were able to get pressure. They created turnovers. They got off the field on third down. And offensively, it was the, the best performance I've seen from Anthony Richardson all season long. May not have been the best statistical outing, but I thought it was the best it, I'd seen him in command of an offense and the best game plan to put him in position to be successful. Early on, you saw a lot of nakeds and boots. You also saw tremendous use of the zone read stuff, which is right up his alley. I think, like we've talked about before, he is a shooter. When he gets hot, the rest of the yep. game is going to flow that way. And, and, you know, on the flip side, when things don't go well, it's going to be a long day. So they did a good job of putting him in his wheelhouse early to have that success he needed. Yeah, he graded out at 86% for the game on pro football focus, and that's an incredibly high number. Obviously, quarterbacks are going to get graded on a difficult scale. I thought he was massive. I think this is a big win for Florida. Go on the road, 11 a.m. kick, Texas A&M. You're not quite sure what's going to be available for them. And so, yes, that hurts them, but also you don't really know who to prepare for, and their backs are against the wall. I feel like even though all of that happened, it's still a win that Florida had to have and it helps the narrative of this season. I truly do. I mean, going on the road, beating Texas A&M, I think that can help Florida continue to try to get to where they want to go. Now, I understand that Florida has high expectations, and they should. This isn't necessarily where Florida wants to be, but CD, I don't know if you would agree, like this feels like a win that they had to have, and it's a massive victory, even though Texas A&M is not the team we thought they were. I think you have three teams left on your schedule that you can beat. Yeah. Is it going to be easy? No. I think you can beat South Carolina at home, certainly Vanderbilt on the road. Now, at Florida State, that is more difficult maybe than we thought before the season. But if you roll off a couple of victories here after what happened in Jacksonville, let's say you win three or four. I'll be honest with you, I'm still going to consider that a successful run there after you were six and seven a year ago. Yeah, Hess, I, I thought heading into November, Florida would be lucky to go two and two, which would have fin finished the year at six and six. Yeah. Um, you know, less than than optimal given what you did at least the the feeling that you had after you beat utah in week one i think that was right. one that a lot of people considered you know florida stealing uh as you looked at the schedule in the preseason but you know where i thought they'd be lucky to go two and two now i think they have a, a as good a chance as as any to go four and oh in the month of november with what's left on the schedule and i think that game was a large com uh, a large confidence boost for this team that has so many young guys and it's like hey you Coaches, you 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 do what we ask you to do. You trust the game plan. You go out there and play. This is what happens. Yep. And so I think it's a big building block for the future for this Florida football team and the young players that got some necessary time on Saturday. And I'll just quickly go big chart to the other side. Texas A&M, it's just bad. It's bad all around. You're three and six. You're one and five in conference play. You had some flu issues. You were missing key pieces. I understand all of that, but it's just bad. And the ball is rolling downhill, and you can't stop it. There's no way to get in front of it right now. You're just going to have to let the ball roll all the way down to the bottom and just settle itself in the offseason, and then you're going to have to regroup. That's just – it is what it is right now. You've got to go win three games in a row to just be bowl eligible. 
You got to go win three in a row for the number six preseason team in the country to be bowl eligible. And I just don't see it happening. Um, Haynes King, yet again, just completion percentage is incredibly low. You can tell that there's playmaking ability there, but it's not consistent enough for it to make a difference. You feel bad for A-Chain because he's a hell of a running back, 122 yards, two touchdowns in this game. But he just it's not enough in college football at this level when you have one playmaker out there making plays. Again, that's just that's it is what like Aggie fans, if you're listening to this, you're probably not searching out actually content for the Aggies right now because I know how that is when your team's losing, like you almost don't want to hear about it. It's not going to get better. There's nothing in this season that can save this season. Will beating LSU help probably your feelings like at the end of the season? Yeah, it helped your feelings, but it's not going to help the growth of the program. It's not coming until the offseason, and that's just the way it is. It's not a great feeling, but that's what you have to wait on. Hess, I'll say this, man, before we move on from AM. A chain has been tremendous. I actually saw a lot of positive in Evan Stewart and the way that he ran routes on, on Saturday. Um, clearly, you know, the hype that uh, he, he was brought in under is starting to show itself. Uh, he was targeted 17 times in that game. Musim Muhammad targeted 13 times. They had three guys that caught passes on the entire afternoon. And to your point, A-Chain doing the heavy lifting in terms of 16 carries on the ground. He also had one catch. I'm sorry, f- uh, four receivers caught balls. A-Chain caught one. Three, three receivers, one running back, to yeah, your point. Yeah, exactly. So the... The fact that they don't have more guys to spread the ball around to, I don't know if it's just the limitations of the offense or the lack of trust in anybody else, but like it's tough to win in this day and age when you only have three weapons that you feel like you can get the ball to in order to to give yourself success a chance for success on offense. I'm with you there. And again, like there's going to be massive changes in the offseason on the coaching staff. You have some players in that building, obviously, with the way you were uh, have recruited. Now you have to continue recruiting like that, and you have to re-recruit probably some of those players that are a little upset with the way the season has gone. Like, we know that's the case in college football now, so it's going to be very interesting there in College Station in the offseason. All right, Big Turp. All right, let's go to the uh, Auburn-Mississippi State game, but I I do want to start on the Auburn side of things because first game under Cadillac Williams, and they did lose, but it was a slightly encouraging performance to take them to OT, end up losing – 39-33, 39-33, but we'll hit Auburn first, Mississippi State second. Hess, last call, what you got? All right, we're going to hit Auburn first, Mississippi State second. Uh, Auburn, you're right. Like, they put up fight for Cadillac, and I've got so much respect for Cadillac Williams. He was one of the guys, when I got into college football, it's like, that's what an SEC running back is supposed mm-hmm. to look like. It hasn't been, e- even with Harson, you haven't seen a team quit. That's not been the case, which that is encouraging. It's encouraging because they've had many opportunities to quit, but there's just there's not enough. And, and Robbie Ashford, 7 of 22, 75 yards. Now, he had 108 and two tuds on the ground, and that's great, but they just they have to find more through the air in today's college football. I do like the fact that they gave Bigsby and Hunter the football. They gave it to him 25 times combined. That's what they should have been doing all season long. But if you're going to throw 22 passes, C.D., You've got to be more efficient. If your stat line was 8 of 11, I I can get on board with that because you know that you're limited there, but you came up with 11 concepts that you felt good about. When you're 7 of 22, that's just – part of that's got to fall on coaching. It has to fall on coaching because you're not putting your team in the best-case scenario to succeed. And I understand it it is – 
I can't imagine like the tornado that's going on in that building right now because you're coaching. You don't know if you got to sell your house, where you're going to be next year. And so I'm not even really throwing all this blame on them because, again, I feel for that staff right now. But it's not just been this last week. It's been when Brian Harson was there. You just offensively, you wish they'd put a game plan together to match the skill set that their players have. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a disappointing uh, situation to watch them have to have the limitations that they do. And, it, and a lot of it is with talent, too. I think there's a big talent discrepancy with Auburn's roster versus, you know, a lot of the other teams in the SEC. But I do – the reason you put Cadillac in that position is because you want to inspire those guys. You want them to play hard. You want them to represent their school – in the best possible way. And I did see that from them. Yeah. I just unfortunately think it's going to be a, an uphill climb the last three ball games for them. And and I don't know that they win, you know, another SEC game the rest of the year. Yeah. And right now, obviously, they're searching for their next head coach. That's why you make the move so early. They're not the only school searching for the next head coach. And certainly we'll have an episode where we're talking about coaching searches when we don't have games to preview. And the next hire just feels like a massive one for Auburn because. The last one just did not work out in any shape. It didn't work out in in any way that you wanted it to work out. And it didn't work out for Brian Harson the way he wanted it to work out. So we'll certainly cover that in, well, I'd say the offseason, but it's probably going to happen around championship week. Wouldn't you assume, yeah. CD? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, like you said, that's the reason why you, you make the move when you did. Give yourself a jump to uh, get in on some of the the uh, the, the the coaching uh, carousel uh, work that's going on and Finding finding that right that right guy is is of the utmost importance, and it was it's ironic. I don't know if you want to go to this one or not, Big Turp, but a guy put a pretty good resume tape together on Saturday playing against an SEC team that uh, you know certainly I imagine his name is in the mix right now. Yeah, he's got a hell of a first name too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we talked we, we talked about A and M uh, and their struggles. I feel like when we were going around at SEC media days saying who's the third best team in the SEC, the most common answers were A and M and Arkansas. Might have been. A, I know some people were on Tennessee, some people were on Kentucky, but I think yeah, two Kentuckys here. But yeah, yeah, you're right about that. There was a lot of Arkansas being thrown around. A&M, Arkansas, and then Arkansas, Arkansas had that three game slide, and then they win two in a row, including that BYU road game. So we're like, all right, maybe they're figuring out a little bit. But dropping that at home to Hugh Freeze and Liberty does not help anybody. Has the, the the most embarrassing thing to me was the performance of the offensive line. There was a lot of embarrassing A things. good offensive line, too. Uh, I, an offensive line that I had talked about a couple of weeks ago maybe being the best, most consistent group, a veteran group with you know juniors and seniors that have played a lot of, of snaps in this conference. And for them to step out of conference against a team that only averages you know right at about five tackles for loss a game, to give up 14 tackles for loss, to not give your running backs an opportunity to get going because of penetration – to not allow your quarterback to find receivers down the field because of of, of guys uh, being able to to rush and, and get pressure. Like that to me is what is the most inexcusable. And I know it's the most embarrassing for Sam Pittman, an offensive line guy at heart, an right. offensive line coach at heart, a unit that he takes great pride in working with frequently on a daily basis for them to not show up like that. I know they, they made a, you know, a comeback, a valiant effort in the second half, but, when you're down 21 nothing to a group of five school at home and you're an SEC team, it's it's not acceptable. Now, this is a good Liberty football team. This is a Liberty football team that is eight and one. I understand that. But to your point, CD, we just thought Arkansas was above a place like this because of all the weapons they've had. 
The offensive line has been one that has been steady. They've graded out incredibly high throughout the entire season. But Liberty gave them issues. And Liberty used that old walk around. I'm going to, you know, kind of disguise where I'm going to end up, even though I know where I'm going to end up. And they were very gap sound. That's what they used. And it confused Arkansas. And Arkansas couldn't really adjust to it. And because of that, Liberty was able to be more physical, in my opinion, on the defensive front than Arkansas's offensive line. Some of it had because Arkansas wasn't confident in who they had, but that doesn't matter. The story was Liberty was more physical than them, and they won third downs offensively, and they made the plays when they had to make them. And this wasn't a fluke. Uh, like, I don't want it to sound like it was a fluke. Liberty beat them. Liberty went in there and almost gave it away, honestly, in the fourth quarter. So Arkansas is a team that's hard to figure out. There's a lot to like. In fact, there's a lot to love about Arkansas. But there's also some head scratchers. Like, why is it happening the way it is? You know who they have at linebacker. Um, you know who they have really in the front seven. Now, the defensive backs, they've not been on the same page. Like, you'll have uh, of the five, and I say five, two safeties, two corners, and now obviously everyone plays with a nickel a bulk of the time. You'll have three that play at a high level and two that play at an incredibly bad level. Not like three okay and two decent. It's three really good sometimes, and then two that are playing so bad that it takes away from the good and they just haven't been consistent in the back end. I, I can't figure this team out, CD. I think Rocket, San Rocket Sanders is a, a, an unbelievable running back, but then you're looking for more help at the receiver position. You're not getting it there. You're trying to replace a first-round pick. You haven't done so. So it's not like a dumpster fire situation by any means. I think there's still things to like about Arkansas, but it's like, why can't it all come together? Yeah. And you're right. I, I thought that they had figured things out because remember last year they struggled uh, through a similar three game period where they lost yeah. uh, three successive games. They did the same thing this year. You felt like they were going to, you know, hit a you know, hit, hit a little bit of a stride after KJ Jefferson returned and and the offense looked more like what we've come to expect them to look like. And for them to get shut out the way they did in the first half, it just reminded me a lot of their effort against Missouri State. And Missouri State's a team that you can sleepwalk through and come back and, and win the ballgame in the second half. That's not the case with Liberty. As you said, a good group of five yeah. school that plays hard, that believes they can win these games because they've been in these situations before. I forgot all about the Missouri State game, by the way. Yeah. Bobby Petrino coming back. That's actually that's a good point of reference to kind of talk about this game. They could, they could do it in that game. Liberty too good. For that to happen uh big one this week for arkansas we'll get to it in a little bit Hugh, who we have next we got another one of those teams that was in the preseason discussion about third best in the sec from both of you kentucky kentucky beats missouri over the weekend um obviously not where they wanted to be at this point but they have uh they've now won two of three against mississippi state and missouri with yeah. a bad loss to tennessee sandwiched in there but let's go last call kentucky after that mizzou win on the road so six and three, not exactly where we had them. CD and I were as high as anyone on Kentucky, but it's not like they've fallen off a cliff. I mean, they are still a football team that can go out there and beat a good team. We saw it against Mississippi State. We have seen it throughout the year. We saw it against Florida early in the year. Florida coming off that huge victory against Utah that was on the road in the swamp. Outside of the Tennessee game when you just got just thumped. I mean, they still, Ole Miss game, had many opportunities in that one. South Carolina, that game, you had some opportunities. You weren't able to pull it off. So, this is a team that we thought would be uh, probably a step ahead of where they're at, but it's not like they're three steps below where we had them. So you've got Vanderbilt and how you got number one, Georgia. That was a game that we thought was going to be the SEC East championship game. Basically it's not going to be 
that, but you still have an opportunity there. You'll get a victory against Vanderbilt. Then you have Louisville, who's not bad, CD. Louisville's been playing really good football. They're 6-3 and three in the ACC. Scott Satterfield, who had a hot seat coming into the season, has cooled that one off as well. So there's still moments that can Kentucky can go out there and win big games, but there's also an opportunity for them to lose two of the next three. Yeah, I, I just um, – I, I think the thing that disappoints me the most, Hess, and the thing that's holding them back the most – is that offensive line. The one thing that we've known that we can count on the constant under Mark Stoops over the last five years is what's letting them down right now. And, you know, you could say what you want. There have been instances where Will Levis holds the ball too long, and I don't know that he's been, you know, lived up to the billing of being, you know, a top 10 pick in the NFL draft or not. I know the NFL drafts based on potential, and we haven't seen a a ton of that realized this year against SEC opponents from Will Levis. But how much of that has been because of the offensive line? How limited is, is I mean, they're last in the conference in sacks allowed. Uh, they couldn't get the running game going. And credit Missouri, too. They got a tremendous defensive line. I don't think people realize just how good they are up front. But Kentucky did what they had to do. They made a couple drives when they had to in the second half. Will Levis goes six of seven with two touchdowns in the in the third and fourth quarter uh, to, to give them what they needed. And they made the special teams plays when Missouri didn't. They, there was a punt earlier that the Missouri punter drops that he tries to run for the first time, gets stopped, and, and Kentucky gets good field position. The other side of the ball, the ball, Kentucky's punter makes a hell of an athletic play, going and getting the ball, yeah. getting it out, and and taking the roughing the penalty, uh, roughing the punter call that <laughs> he gave himself up. up for that one. He did, he did, and and that takes a lot of composure. Most most kickers in that situation has are kicking the ball out the back of the end zone or are jumping on it and trying to take the safety. Yeah. He's he's trying to make a play, and I, I credit him for uh, for doing that, putting his body on the line for the team. So I'll say this. Kentucky, again, still can have a, a nice season, can still create momentum, can still have big victories at the end of the season. And then I'll say this about Missouri. I, I, I don't know if they have the talent that they want to have, but I know that they have to be excited about the dogfight that they have in them. Every single one of their players, when you turn on the tape, they fight like hell. The only game they got out of hand was that Kansas State game. Every other game, they're giving you every ounce of anything that they have. And we love drink. We talk about drink all the time. But if I had a group of five job and it's open and my team needs some grit and they need somebody to come in there and light a fire, I'm calling Blake Baker. And I'm Mm -hmm. calling him yesterday because he's going to be my next head coach. I don't know if Blake wants to do that. I know Blake pretty well. I don't know if that's something that's a passion of his to be a head coach. He might love being a defense coordinator. I don't know that. But if I had a group of five job, that's my first call. Uh, like I truly believe what he's done for this defense and what he's done for the attitude of this defense is remarkable. It's amazing the turnaround, particularly how poor they were last year on the de- in the defensive side against the run. I mean, they were historically bad defending the run to the point where we got on here every week and laughed about it. I mean, it yep. was a... It was the butt of the jokes that we talked about when we addressed Missouri and they went out and, and, and made that now a strength. Uh, they were in the top five in rush defense uh, in the conference. When I looked last week, I, I imagine that they vaulted up even higher than that now, but uh, credit to them for that and, and credit to them. They're starting to minimize mistakes on offense. You know, and I, I think yep. you, you go back and you looked at, at Brady cook early in the season, he'd have, Moments of playing really well, and then that 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 mind-numbing mistake that would cost Missouri the ball game. He's still not in my top, you know, of the the 
in the top half of the, the league's quarterbacks, but I think he's moving up because he's minimizing mistakes. He's understanding the offense. He's showing right. athleticism, running the football. And uh, I do see a future where he, you know, blossoms into a, a more robust quarterback in this conference. All right, Big Turp, where are we going next? Do you want to spin it forward? Because uh, I wanted to start with Kentucky, Missouri in pregaming. Say that again now? Do you guys want to spin it forward to pregaming? Yeah, but Kentucky, Missouri already played, so we can't pregame a game that already happened. Did I say Kentucky, Missouri? <laughs> you did. Oh. <laughs> and picture me saying Tennessee, Missouri. All right, so Tennessee, Missouri. Tennessee just got not – exposed but they got shut down by georgia's defense held the 13 points they had not scored less than i think 33 or something like that so i was looking at it earlier they've scored under 30 one time it was last week and uh missouri has given up over 30 one time and that was kansas state in week two so we've talked a ton about blake baker's defense is that defense good enough to repeat what we saw from georgia against tennessee let me ask you let's start let me ask you this question real quick is the blueprint for how you beat Tennessee and their offense out now? Did Georgia put that on tape to where everybody's going to try to replicate that and it just comes down oh, to yeah. their ability and their personnel to execute it? Absolutely. They put out a blueprint. Now, Jimmy's and Joe's at Georgia or Jimmy's and Joe's at Georgia and not anywhere else, but doesn't mean you can't replicate it and have success. And again, like Blake Baker, the thing I can say the best about him is his guys buy into whatever he's selling. And so they'll buy into the game plan. Now, is it enough to keep them down for as long as Georgia did? Probably not. But it's not about that. Can you keep them under 30? And from what I've seen from Missouri, it doesn't mean Tennessee won't win the game 28-7. But what I've seen from them, I think they can keep them under 30. It's it's the best part about it. We talked about earlier. So what you want to do against Tennessee's offense is create some sort of pressure up the middle, some push that's going to disrupt Hendon Hooker. That's exactly what Missouri does. I mean, they they did that. They made it incredibly difficult against Georgia in that game back in September because of the penetration, not only against the pass, but against the run. I think they can have some success disrupting it. The other thing that you have to do you got to be physical with those receivers. You got to be willing to, to play press coverage out there. Yep. You can't let them get free releases with those switch releases that they like to use out of the stack formations. You got to be able to put somebody on that point. Sometimes you got to mix it up and, and, and press the guy that's in the back just to disrupt him because the guy in the front is a dummy receiver. He's trying to yes. clear you out to get somebody else behind him open up. So you've got to be able to, to take some chances and, and leave your, your corners in one-on-one -on -one situations and believe that they can hold up not only in coverage, but being physical at the line of scrimmage to, to, to throw that timing off. Yeah, we're talking about the fourth total defense in the SEC in Missouri. So this isn't just a, an improved unit that we're sitting here waxing poetically about because we like the improvements that they've made. They're a real defense. And so they can create a game plan to slow Tennessee down and like CD's talking about, Tennessee's offense is, is unique, but there's some things that you can do if you have the personnel and the buy-in to do so. We'll see if Missouri can do it and how long they can keep up. If this game was in Como, I might even circle it as a uh, sleepy Saturday watch out. It being at home, although, I mean, Kentucky at home, Alabama at home, Florida at home, that atmosphere is not going to be what it was in those three games. So... Tennessee has to realize like they might have to create some of their own juice early, but it being at home, not having to travel and it being an early kick probably favors Tennessee in this case. Yeah. Do you like um, 
their ability to bounce back. I think what they've shown such such maturity throughout the way they handled that eight game winning streak and and not you know looking ahead, not getting tripped up, not playing down to the level of competition. I expect that same sort of maturity to show itself when they handle adversity of this loss and and the demoralizing nature of how they were beaten. But you look at, and we could talk about the 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 rankings. They are in great position. You know, the, the playoff ranker says they got a 62% chance to get in. And oh, by the way, it's probably a better path than having to go back to Atlanta. Handle your business in the final three games of the season, and you're going to find your way into the college football playoffs. There's no doubt in my mind. And uh, I just, I hope that they have the same level of maturity that they handled their success with as they handled this, this disappointment of losing to Georgia. I think they bounce back. I think it's probably more difficult than Tennessee fans are going to realize because I think Missouri just plays that hard. They'll bounce back. It's a 21-point spread. Don't know if they get there. If they did, I wouldn't be shocked. Make no mistake about it. But it's an interesting spot for Tennessee, and they can use this as a springboard to continue to try to get into the CFP because, like CD said, they are in a great position. Now, another potential sleepy Saturday game. And that's what we used to call them in the locker room when you had the early kick and it was against a team that wasn't ranked and you're ranked LSU number seven in the country traveling to Fayetteville, Arkansas to take on that Arkansas team. We spent a lot of time talking about both teams, but CD, I'll throw this one to you. How do you expect this game to play out? How do I expect this, this game to play out? Yeah. 11 a.m. Kick. It's supposed to be cold in Fayetteville. K.J. Jefferson's questionable for the game. LSU coming off a very emotional victory at home against Alabama. All the storylines. I, I don't I don't think that there is any doubt in my mind that LSU is going to be able to handle this, this situation. Like, I've been incredibly impressed with how they've gone about uh, evolving uh, throughout the season. I, I mentioned it earlier. This has been the, the biggest jump I've ever seen from any team within the year from where they started to where they are right now. A lot of that has to do with the same evolution of their quarterback, Jaden Daniels. Yeah. But look at, I, I love, look at Mason Taylor, right? Mason Taylor was part of the reason why LSU lost that opening game of the season. And fast forward yeah. two and a half months later, he's the guy you're going to in the fourth quarter on a touchdown pass that that, that uh, you had to have. And, and when you, you go for the two-point play, you, you put the game in the hands of, of him running that route right, using the pick right, catching the ball right. Like it, it just shows the growth of this entire this team. And uh, I think that they are ready to go handle this situation. Like I, I, I think Matt House is the best defensive quarter, the most underrated defensive quarter. I don't want to say best. I think he's done one of the best jobs in all the country when it comes to coordinators this year. The plan that he put together uh, last week against uh, Alabama, the ability to get pressure. They rarely brought more than four. Now they brought right. guys from all over the place, but right. they rarely brought more than four. They didn't put themselves in tough situations. And to me, that was one of the most impressive things. I, I, I imagine you'll see a similar game plan in the usage of Harold Perkins Jr. as well. Yeah, that's what I said this morning. Yeah, Game plan Oh, yeah, with him in that, that spy role, the athleticism that he had, the instincts that he has, you're going to need that same sort of game plan against a mobile K.J. Jefferson too. So I think you'll see some of the same sort of game plan from him. But I think they handle this, this uh, challenge with flying colors. Yeah, I think this is a team that showed maturity. I think this is a team that understands that they have an opportunity in front of them. And is Arkansas a good team? They can be. Not to say they are. They haven't been consistent, but they can be. And look, you've got Joe Fouché and Greg Brooks, who are starters for you that played at Arkansas last year, right? So you hope those players in, in the building are saying, hey, here's what Arkansas can do. Here's what they thought about you last year. Remember, Arkansas got an overtime victory in this game. 
last year. And so, like, if you're LSU, you hope those guys are talking through the, the younger players this week to maybe kind of prepare them for that game. Again, early kick, cold, the whole deal. So LSU has been a mature team. We'll see if they can continue to be a mature team. Really the game of the week, though, if we're sitting here pre-gaming the SEC, Alabama and Ole Miss, because if LSU does, in fact, beat Arkansas and Alabama beats Ole Miss – then LSU could lose to Texas A&M and still get to Atlanta. So there's a lot on the line there in Oxford because if Ole Miss wins, let's not forget about them. Bro. If Ole Miss wins, they're not in the SEC championship game because LSU has the head-to-head and LSU could just win their games and be in Atlanta. But let's say LSU slips up in one of those two weeks. Ole Miss continues winning. They get to the SEC championship game. And if they win, they only have one loss. They get into the CFP. Yeah, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not allowing... LSU to play any of these hypothetical buffer situations. I, I, I believe yeah. LSU goes to the SEC title game, beats Georgia, and and is in a two-loss SEC champion. I think they get into the college football playoffs. I think they make history. You don't have coming. to talk me into a two-loss national champion. CD. No, I know you're I know you're down for that for sure. But it, it is amazing how easily we've overlooked Ole Miss and the job that we've yeah. they've done there this year, replacing you know, coordinators and quarterbacks and, and bringing young guys in. Quinshawn Judkins, he probably should be talked about in the Heisman Trophy race. I mean, the numbers that he's put up this year. It's fair. Um, you know, the other guy, too, that I'm disappointed that 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 has been underutilized that should be in the Heisman is uh, Jameer, Jameer Gibbs, too. Looking at the, yeah. the, the versatility, his average, you know, yards per carry, it's another question as to why Bill O'Brien hadn't used him more running the football. But I think Quinchon Judkins is a guy that uh, has had a tremendous season that nationally not a lot of people know about. I would agree with that. Like sometimes when we talk about him on off campus, there's some people that still don't know about him and they'll say, you know, that old Miss running back. I'm like, man, you got to learn that guy's name. That, that guy's been special. That guy is going to be on all American teams and he's been a real force. And Evans was the guy, obviously, and Evans is, I think, still going to be a very good player, going to play on Sundays, but he got all the headlines coming over from TCU and he should have because. You got one player coming over. He's a freshman. You have another player who's kind of proven it at a power five level. But now they have really two really good running backs. And I'm going to be intrigued how Alabama bounces back. Alabama's used a lot of emotion over the last couple of weeks, and they've fallen just short. I am not buying into the Alabama fall. When you lose on a last-second field goal against Tennessee, when you lose in overtime on a two-point conversion in Death Valley against two really good teams, I am not going to say you're about to have this fall and, and the dynasty's over. Alabama can beat any team in the country, and they have to have a bounce back this week against Ole Miss. We'll see if they can. It's a lot of emotion I, they've used. I, I'm I'm not even worried about. I, I am worried about the emotion. You're right about that. What's left in the energy in the uh, in the fuel tank? But I'm worried about the situation that Alabama's in. I mean, when was the last time we we've, we've talked about an Alabama team this early in November being out of the the SEC championship game and all all likeness, not being in the college football playoff mix? You know, how many of those guys decide that they're not going to play? Bryce Young, how healthy is he? He threw, you know, for a 49% completion rate, some of which was because of LSU, others because of, of just errant throws. How healthy is his shoulder? Does he decide that he needs to sit out maybe with not as much on the line? Like, I, I'm interested it's, it's to see fair what question. That, that focus level looks like for the last three weeks of the season for the Crimson Tide. Yeah, as Big Turp reminds us, 2010 was the last time they had two losses before the Iron Bowl. I mean, they've been as consistent as any team, but – I'm saying I'm not buying into them falling off just because, one, I know that head coach I had the fortune of playing for him. And when you look at their losses, I mean, you're talking about two of the best venues in the country, 
two of the top seven teams in the country. And it took last second. I mean, the field goal is is the ugliest made field goal maybe of all time, but it still went through the uprights. All Tennessee fans care about. And then you had to have a play in overtime. And so they'll still be in this game. They'll be ready for this game. I'm expecting a four quarter game. And I do think that you'll see maybe not the best version of Alabama, but you'll see a quality version of Alabama. All right. I do want to get to a couple more of these games. Uh, South Carolina, Florida, South Carolina, Florida is a game that for Florida, I think it would be a big victory. South Carolina, the same thing. Anytime South Carolina can go into the swamp and get a victory, I don't care what Florida's record is or what's happened before that. I feel like that is a big thing for them. And then Florida, CD, we talked about it earlier. You go get this victory. You're six and four. You're three and four in the SEC, and you still have some opportunities to put a product out there. If you finish eight and four in this season, I'm, I'm going to, you might not agree with me because I know, you know, the expectations of that place, but I'll consider that a win. Yeah, no doubt about it. I, I think that um, you, know, you, you look at what has transpired up and down with the way that that uh, this this uneven just from the start of the year, it's been an uneven year for for them. And so I I think you're right about that. And I think that um, there's a lot of a lot of positives to be able to build on, which is is it's still very early in the tenure of this coaching staff. So there's a lot that you need to play for for this year, but it's also about the foundation for the future. Georgia, Mississippi State, Georgia traveling to Starkville and Mississippi State, six and three, three and three in conference. It's been a little hard to to figure out exactly what they can do against these top tier teams. They come out 13 to nothing against LSU. And I'm like, okay, like this looks different. And then LSU is able to obviously in the second half, not only win the game, kind of pulled away. For Mississippi State, we saw the matchup against Alabama, which is never a good matchup for Mississippi State. Georgia is a 16-point favorite. This feels like another bad matchup for Mississippi State, and I think that's a team that deserves probably more credit than we give them, but still, they're not ready for this matchup. They're not really built for a matchup like this. I think Georgia goes in, and I think they cover. I asked this question the other day on our show with Alyssa. You know, we watched Alabama completely smother Mississippi State's offense, their passing game, their ability to, you know, kind of sit on everything, no real threat of the passing game stretching the field. Um, they had 15 pass breakups in that ball game. We know Georgia's defense is similarly built. How much do you think that translates? Watching what what Alabama was able to do and the game plan that they utilized, how much do you think that translates for for Georgia's defense, for Kirby, for for Glenn Schumann, for Will Muschamp? Say that again. How much do you think that that translates? Like the success, the game plan that Alabama had against yeah, Mississippi like State, the way trying to replicate, able, you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm saying it, it's a very similar defense that those two teams play. And I just, as you right. said, it's a bad matchup. I think a lot of it, you know, it's a bad matchup in terms of athletes, but it's a bad matchup in styles. I, as we, I was talking about. more about style than athletes, right? To your point, I was making. That's why I wanted to make sure you're talking about a different situation. I think it's more about the style of the defense. And that's why I think it's such a bad matchup for them because I think it's similar styles. And like, we know Georgia has the athletes, but it's not always the case. Like we've seen really good teams with really good athletes struggling against the air raid. That's why I think it's more like styles make fights. And I think the style of what Georgia does is just a bad matchup for Mississippi state and the air raid. And again, I don't, I don't, I don't know if Mississippi State can even do anything. Like, this has kind of been the story. Like, they can win games against good teams, but some matchups in the air raid just give them problems. Georgia's going to give them problems. And I just, 
I can't see it being a ball game. Yeah, I don't see it being a ball game either. Um, I, I don't expect Georgia to have a let get, let down after the big game that they had this past weekend against Tennessee. It is an interesting environment to go into Starkville, particularly for an SEC East team that doesn't play there a lot. That's the one thing that I'm interested in keeping my eye on. But um, I, I agree with you in terms of the matchup and style of of uh, Georgia's defense against that uh, offense for Mississippi State. I, it, it does not bode well for the the, the Bulldogs from Starkville. All right, real quick, before we get out of here today, Big Terp, best bets. Can we get some updated standings? How did we do last week? Because I'll be honest with you, I hadn't even gone back and tallied it up. How did we do? Not oh. good. Oh, oh, no. oh, no. Yeah, some good, some bad. Uh, Doring went with it. Went with the four. He, he put himself out there and unfortunately did not pay off this week. Um, the Tennessee, Georgia over 65, just a bummer. I mean, Tennessee scores 13 points. We're not going to get there. Um, Liberty, Arkansas over 61 and a half. Also relatively less scoring. I believe that totaled out at like 40. Vanderbilt plus seven. They ended up losing by 11. But you do hit the LSU Alabama over 56 and a half, which that's a good hit because it looked pretty bleak early on there. Um, so one and three for CD, which brings you to 16, 17 and one on the year. So we're just one good week away from being back over 500. Uh, Hess, you went two and one. You missed out on plus eight and a half Tennessee, which I think everybody in the world was on and Vegas just knew. And I mean, it's, it's one of those bets where you're going in, like, how can this not hit, but yeah. defi definition of a sucker bet um, LSU, Alabama over also hit. And then I, what's the, what's the number where you wouldn't take a Missouri under at this point? Cause you hit the <laughs> Missouri Kentucky under 40 and a half. And that ended up at, I believe 38 points. It would have to be 38 and a half. I think 38, 38 and a half is the number that it'd have to be for me not to take it. Well, we'll test that uh, in, in the coming weeks, but Hess goes two and one was pushes you, pushes you out to 17, 13 and one. That's those are some legitimate numbers right there. Hey, We'll just continue on. We'll continue on. See if under we can radar. continue. Uh, like, just slowly hey, go under the radar. I started feeling myself too much after that 6-0 and back-to-back -back weeks and said, hey, man, I'm going to roll the dice here, get that number pumped up even more with four plays, and the four-play uh, action did not, uh, did not turn out well for me. Has the Missouri-Tennessee total 57. I mean, yeah. I mean, I can't sit here and say 38 and a half and not take it. Yeah. And now, will Tennessee score a bulk of those points? Probably so. Does, but... does Tennessee average 45 and a half? Hold yes, up. they do. What's the total? 57. 57. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if Tennessee scores 42, right? I mean, can Missouri make up the rest of it? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You might hear about that one later in Best Bets. So stay tuned for that. It's going to come out probably sometime either late tomorrow night or early Saturday morning, obviously before the noon Eastern time games. So remember, walk-ons, walk-ons.com to find a location near you. You can find them on social media as well. You can find us on social media at Pregaming the SEC. Pregaming the SEC on Spotify and Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, we're there as well. And Pregaming the SEC on YouTube. Just search it. We'll pop up. We'll have this episode for you so you can watch us as well. Although CD's dog didn't make an appearance for the first time in a while, 
We'll find out what happened there. I mean, I don't know. CD, I got the dog. I got the door open right now. I'm letting the dog roam a little bit more okay. here. Uh, there's not a lot going on outside with the uh, the storm and not not dogs walking or people knocking on doors. So I didn't have to worry about him, you know, busting in with a, an outburst of uh, barks. So we we let him have a little free roam in the house here during the show today. All right, there you go. We will see you next week for Week 12 of pre gaming the SEC. Brought to you by Walk On Sports Bistro.